Okay. Now, I think what we should do is we should both clap the same. Okay. So we say one, two, and then we clap. Okay, ready? You count it. One, two. That was terrible. That was really bad. Okay. Cancel. Erase. Is it as bad as my setup? Ready? 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 Ready, set, go. Dear readers, this is our first time recording uh, from our new studios. Mine is in my father's closet. Um, Matt set up 300 towels and pillows that surround me. I'm in like a crazy makeshift soundproof cave. Then I Mm -hmm. get to calling Carrie. She's in a regular bedroom with like at a desk with a pillow, a pillow. No, there's four pillows around me there's three right in front of me so i i think that it's getting the sound waves and then i felt guilty because quinn is like like really i'm doing a really good job she's like laying it on thick that she's like oh i've spent so much time matt spent an hour and a half like really laying on the guilt trip thick and i i just honestly you are in quarantine too we're all working from home. I'm in my childhood bedroom with a twin bed. I'm actually, I got to screenshot this. This is too funny. I'm like trying. I put a Mother Teresa type blanket over me in the hopes that it somehow will take some sound out. I don't know. Look, we're doing the best we can. I mean, here's what you guys should know, first of all. Um this is so we had a lot of backlogged episodes we could air during quarantine which was great because if you guys want to know the truth um we have to apologize because of the kinds of new yorkers we both are which is to say when the going got rough we got gone and carrie went home to chicago and i went home to hawaii and we've been living with our parents during quarantine so that someone will be friends with us it's been they're the you only know, people you, that will stay friends with you during this time. It was a really challenging. It was a difficult decision to leave New York. I drove from New York to Chicago, and I only left because I could quarantine at my uncle's house for two weeks. And there was no Wi-Fi there, dear readers. That's why one of the episodes aired, so got downloaded so late, was because I had no Wi-Fi. But there was a really good bathtub. <laughs> Carrie called me from the bath once, and it's an amazing tub. She added too many bubbles, but it was like a cartoon. It was like, but there was, good it was for like you. A, Live your best life. You know, I had to. I felt like I was there. Why? Why wouldn't I? You, you were know? being a quarantine queen. <laughs> Is that the new that, thing? I don't know. It's probably a thing. <laughs> I wanted to let you know we have three new donors to our Patreon. We want to say <gasps> thank you to them, to Lucy, to Whitney, and to Bronwyn. You guys are amazing. And if you haven't already, if you're not one of those three names, <laughs> then, uh, go to our website, trulydarklycreepy.com, and hit the love button, and it will send you to our Patreon. And guys, come on. 
What have you got to lose? Also, if you give us a dollar, if you're one of the dollar Patreon subscribers, that means that you give us a quarter every time we do an hour-long podcast. It just Mm -hmm. seems super reasonable to me that (laughs) someone would give me a quarter to set up the crazy, crazy pillow closet that I'm in. Like, it's worth at least a quarter. So consider giving um, to our Patreon. Also, you probably don't care about us anymore. As soon as I said I was in Hawaii, you were probably like, unsubscribe. Because (laughs) I get that that's so annoying. And I've lost a lot of friends over coming here. But that was the only reason I thought about not coming here. Was I was like, I think probably a lot of people... No. Have you really lost for no? no okay, but good. It's like God. I definitely have a lot of people in my life that are super annoyed with me right now. But it doesn't, you know, there was not enough argument. I was like, yeah, I would hate someone like me, and that just wasn't like a good enough reason to not do this. So here we mm-hmm. are. Um, but I should let our readers know, since they're into true crime, that this community that I'm in, it's like a gated community in Hawaii. It's so off the walls bananas and bizarre it's all rich white people and they all sit at their homes during the quarantine and do things like if i take koa to the beach they call the police (laughs) 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 like if we if we're in the ocean but we're not like clearly exercising like we get the police called on us it's like they just they have so much boredom and so much hatred it's really intense place. Wait um, a minute. You've gotten the police called oh, on Oh, 100%. And Koa is like wearing this hat that has like one of those long things to protect his neck. And it has a unicorn horn on it. And it's rainbow. Like Koa is wearing a rainbow <laughs> unicorn hat, like naked on the beach. And like the police come. It's And it's so bizarre. It's so out of control. The guards get called all the time. We're always in trouble because in Hawaii... The rules are pretty strict right now because they don't want people doing what I did. They don't want anyone coming. So they're basically like, everything is closed. No fun allowed. You went the weeks before, before New York was properly shut down. Yeah, that's true. You went weeks. And I went before Hawaii was making you quarantine or anything. I mean, we we went, we knew it was going to get worse before it got better. So we left pretty early. I remember when you guys, you guys, it was... Listen, it's not We've been here easier. a couple months. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe it's already been a couple of months. That's yeah. insane. It's totally not. I was, oh, but I, I have drove... to tell you really quickly who oh, my please. neighbors are here. Oh, um, yeah. I'm not going to tell you their names, even though it's super Googleable. But I found out shortly after being here, there was like a couple walking on the beach going to watch the sunset. And we were just talking about how they seemed mad that like Matt and Koa... Were Wait, out they were on walking the beach. to see the sunset? They were and... walking, but like toward their house. Ha- like you're allowed to walk on the wall. That, like, borders the properties, but you can't walk on the beach. Anyway, okay. they were walking, and I happened to mention it, and my mom's like, oh, that's a kind of an interesting couple because the woman actually hired a hitman to kill her husband, and it went to court, and it was, like, just proven that on the dark web she hired a hitman, and he, <laughs> he like, went to bat for her in court and was like, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. Like, I'm not going to press charges and like, we're all good now. It's good. But like, she (laughs) fully like started to source bitcoins. Like it's, and now they're just together. They're just together. Like, like, what is your limit? You know what I mean? Like, what is the limit to what you would do? I just like so much that he was like, yeah, yeah. 
I that's think that's a deal breaker right. for me. Somebody hiring a hitman to kill you. If someone were to hire someone to kill me, I would go, you know what? I'm going to have to go. I don't know. Maybe my parents raised me to have too much self-respect. But you imagine know? the <laughs> sex they have. You know what I mean? It's probably so <laughs> scary every time. It's like it's like I mean, the ice pick sex from uh, Basic Instinct every time. Here's what... Here's what I think is super fishy, and I'm going to say that pun intended because you're in Hawaii. I'm actually genuinely curious what he has to hide because my thought is, is if it mm. came out and she had to defend herself, she probably was like, listen, you fucker. Uh, yeah, I hired a fucking hitman, but you did X, Y, Z, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. 26 letters of the alphabet. She had like a full PowerPoint presentation going. And then you did this. And then you did this. And that is worse than this. And I think I think that's what happened. I don't. Well, I guess we'll never know. But uh, I'm blessed to call them my neighbors for this short time in my life. Do you have any interest in plugging some outside projects really briefly? Oh my God, that's such a good idea. We both kind Quinn of have I, a thing going on. So why don't do. you do your thing and I'll do my thing? We've mentioned that I've gone and done shows out of town and I have a solo show. I have a show called One Woman Sex in the City, which you ask, what is the Venn diagram between true crime and sex in the city? The answer is exactly what you'd think. And I'll let you answer that for yourselves. I don't have time. Way to turn um, it on them. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah. So if you go to, you can see it. You can view it. You can view the show. It was filmed off-Broadway in New York last year. It's called, you can go to the website, One Woman, S-A-T-C. So that stands for One Woman Sex and the City. Dot com. So one woman satc.com. And for $9.95, you can watch the show, um, which is cheaper than a ticket. And part of the proceeds go to the Actors Fund, which is an amazing organization that helps actors. And they've been really proactive in the time of COVID-19 in helping assisting actors and whatnot. So one woman SATC, go watch One Woman Sex in the City. Quinn saw it at that run. So um, funny. I love it. It's so it. fun. We love a pun. I recommend it's... having a cocktail while you watch. Yeah. Having a Cosmo. As... You know what? I don't even like Cosmos, but have one. Have one. Have a quarantini, as I like to call it. Have a quarantini. Have and enjoy One Woman Sex in the City. And you'll see a whole nother version of me. But I'm so excited to also plug Quinn's project because y'all, it's so good. It's really fun. It's so good. Um, My immersive theater and events company that I co-founded am, and am creative director of has a really cool new digital experience that we made since we can't produce any live events right now. And it's called Tracing Spheres. And if you want to try it out, it's an Instagram game where you are solving a mystery and solving puzzles and meeting funny characters through their Instagram profiles uh, throughout. You can just do it. I mean, you're just scrolling through Instagram at home all day anyway. So just try a game on there. Why not? It's totally free. And again, it's called Tracing Spheres. And you just want to go to purplecranimmersive.com and you'll find a uh, the link to start the game and it's totally silly and fun and puzzly and Carrie was one of our uh, I had a, play testers. I actually had a really challenging time with it. I for sure was like, Quinn, what well, about this? You know, we had like we had like five good friends play test the game and it was one of those things where 
on one end you had people that had like a lot of trouble and on the other you had I'm just gonna say it Rebecca that did it in 45 minutes and was like I think it could be harder and I was like okay we're perfect <laughs> you know what I mean Me, I was like, there was moments once I got the the thing I got it like once right once you like learn you get it and it's so fun and there's so many other easter eggs in it it's just a blast it took me like an hour to do it right maybe an hour and a half i don't know that what time right. i started but also we should add these to our website to truly darkly creeply.com we should have a other projects our website. website designer i'm gonna go ahead and say put a pin in it i'll see if i can figure it out we'll see uh <laughs> what we should put on our website is the new videos the pentagon released have you seen them Wait. oh about the ufos yes the Pentagon and released it... three new videos, and they definitely have aliens in them. <laughs> I don't understand why on earth they release those. It's a gift. Don't you think it's we a have gift to humanity. No, come on. They know we're so bored that we're at home. We're so sick of like watching CNN and worrying about uh, this fucking virus that they're like, you know what? Let's just change the subject for a hot second <laughs> and check out some fucking aliens because. That's fun. And I just wish I mean, it was a little more provocative than it is even. I actually haven't looked fully into it yet. Well. I was busy researching my story, which the reason I did my story was because I was editing our podcast and you had requested this. Really? And I'm so, you didn't request this story, but you requested me to do a, t- a version of this oh story. Oh my God, is it a shark attack? It is. I shouldn't shouldn't have said that I want, but it's really good. I don't know if I should go first or not. Um, Who went first last time? You actually went first last time. You and I actually think I should go first, uh, given the yeah disturbing content that's about we don't know what each other. As we as we've said before, we don't know what each other are doing. But I have gotten text from Quinn going, "This is really dark. I don't know what to do. It's really dark." Yeah, I, well, I was like, Carrie, if if ever there was a time for you to not do the darkest, creepiest story, because mine just takes care of, t- mine really ticks those boxes. <laughs> Should well, I dive right tick- in? People are sick of hearing about our lives. Let's. What is this? Dive right in, Quinn. I'm going second. Stop making allusions <laughs> oh to shark God, attacks. You're right. You're right. You. You crazy. Your story's really going to scare me because I'm in shark territory. I thought, for the record, I was doing the research and it scared me. And there was, I'm so, okay, I'll tell you, you got to go. Okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. I'm going to go. I'm first. So I got all my information from an Austin Chronicles article, but mainly I got all my information from a book that my friend Julia gave me called Who Killed These Girls? And it's by Beverly Lowry. And it's all about the Austin. Do you know the story of the Austin yogurt shop? No. Okay. So I'm going to tell it to you right now. But the first thing I want to do actually is just thank Beverly Lowry. The book is really, the book is such a well done deep dive that it was actually really hard for me to synthesize it into something that I could present in a short amount of time because I felt like there were so many interesting things she said that. Um, I was like, I don't even know what part to talk about. But also, I just really like her because she's clearly into true crime, 
obviously she wrote the book and she's written other books about cases. And I just want to read you a really good quote that I feel like speaks to why a lot of us find ourselves interested in morbidity and true crime to begin with. So this is her quote. Dark things attract us. We criticize the media for its overwrought coverage of such events. Yet we watch, we read, and reread because we're relieved it's not us and to imagine what it would be like if it were us. Because the unfolding narrative speaks to our deepest fears to figure out why these things happen and what we should do next. Uh, Isn't that great? So let's, let's get to the big picture. On December 6th, 1991... It's nearing midnight in Austin, Texas, and Sergeant John Wilson Jones is in his cop car, and he's following up on a call of a guy that was threatening suicide, and his phone rings, and the dispatcher tells him there's two fatalities, suspected arson, suspected homicide, and it looks like gunshot wounds, and gives an address. And the address is of an I can't believe it's not yogurt. No, I can't believe it. It's yogurt. (laughs) What what is it if it's not yogurt? (laughs) I can't believe it's not butter, but it is actually yogurt. Spoiler alert, it actually is yogurt. It's an ICBY. I no, can't. It's a, no, it's no, it's TC. This can't be yogurt. No, 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 no. There are TCBYs. There's also ICBYs. Trust. No, there's not. I fucking guarantee it. Well, maybe it's it can't be yogurt. No, it's I can't believe it's yogurt. Bitch, I'm it, telling you. But, Wait, is it I? Is it I C B Y? Yes. Then it's that's too many. It, it better. It's that you're doing too many B's. I'm gonna kill you. No, it's not. It's, you're wrong. I can't believe. Google it right now. Done. Google I C B Y. I C B Y. Yeah. I can't believe it's yogurt. Is a chain of stores. Ah! Bing, 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 is bing, this? Bing, bing, bing. Is this? This is not a Midwestern thing, then. It's an this Austin is... thing. Well, look, okay. I grew up in Denver, and I worked at a TCBY, and that's what it was. It was a TCBY. So I cannot blame you for feeling betrayed and confused by the opening of Thanks. this story. I uh, needed that. But nonetheless, facts are facts. And we're talking about an ICBY in Austin near the North Cross Mall. Jones starts to head over, and before nearly any time has passed, he gets another call. We found another body. Then he gets a fucking third call. Make that four bodies. <gasps> so he's like, what? He arrives on the scene. The windows and the glass in the doors, it's like all black. There's smoke coming from the roof, not just from there, but from adjacent businesses. He approaches from the alley and the steel uh, doors and back to the storage room are open. He looks in and he sees a puddle of water, like insulation that's come out of the ceiling tons of smoke the bodies inside are still smoldering and he said that he's been a policeman at that point for over 20 years and he's just never seen anything like this um, as far as a crime scene and austin never had uh to be clear friday december 6th was the next to last week of the fall semester of school and that 15 year old sarah harbison had just been dropped off at home that day by her big sister jennifer who was 17 jennifer was working that night at the ICBY and before going in she wanted to visit her boyfriend Sammy she and Sammy were both seniors and their deal was that they were waiting to see where he got a basketball scholarship so that she would probably go to the same college as him and they wanted to eventually they wanted to go to college together they wanted to get married 
Carrie's giving face. like a 17 year old thinks that they know who they're going to marry face. But it felt very like small town romancy cute. Um, mm-hmm. So Jennifer's going to go see Sammy. And then at seven, she's going to come home to change for work. She was working at the ICBY to help her with. Uh, she was helping pay her own car payments. And she actually had been working there since the past July because her friend Eliza Thomas worked there and said, it's like a pretty chill job. The owners, Julie and Bill Bryce, that were brother sister, were serious about how they wanted it run. But they were never like no one's ever there. So you're a kid, but you're you're just in the store alone. Like you work. Right. So it's like even though they had a lot of rules, it's super chill because you're just there by yourself. Jennifer and Sarah leave to go to the mall. Sarah's going to get a ride, too. And Jennifer's and Sarah's mom calls out to them when they leave. Be safe. Jennifer's wearing a Timex wristwatch to work that night, and she will die wearing it. It will be stopped at 1148, which is the marker of when the fire was at its peak. Jennifer's body will not be able to be identified by the store manager on site due to the condition after the fire. She will be lying a few feet away from her sister. Sarah goes to the same high school as her sister, and they're also, they're both raising lambs for an FFA project to bring to the livestock show and the rodeo. So that that day they like went and fed their lambs at the barn. And the next day was Saturday and Sarah didn't have any volleyball or basketball practice. So she wanted to go out. She's 15. She has a new boyfriend herself who gave her his senior ring. A promise ring? Yes. The ring will be found neatly tucked in her folded clothing with her Mickey Mouse watch and her wallet next to her. It will have melted. Her body will be found stacked underneath Eliza Thomas's body. Wait a minute. Her clothes were taken off and folded next to her? Correct. Eliza Thomas, 17, just like Jennifer, friends with Jennifer, was raising a pig for the same rodeo. And the morning of December 6th, she also went to the barn to feed her. ICBY was her second job. She also babysat for a nine-year-old boy. And Eliza had school and then went into work afterwards. Police will find Eliza's shoes set neatly next to Jennifer's and her body will be stacked on top of Sarah's. Like the three, like the other girls, she'll be naked, bound, and burned. The last victim is Amy Ayers. She's the youngest victim at age 13. She was friends with 15-year-old Sarah and they were planning a sleepover that night and they wanted to go to North Cross Mall first to do like, did you ever like mall crawl when you were that age? What is mall crawl? Um, it's just like when you would have your parents drop you off at the mall and you would walk around the mall, like in middle school. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I did that. I rem- yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I would have we did Auntie that all the time. pretzel every time. Yeah, and like I would always buy my friend Lucy and I would buy bath beads, and from the body shop, and then we'd have contests who could break them quicker. We also used to go to the candy store and get a balloon and then let it float to the top of the mall and then come in and explain that it happened and see if they would replace the balloon so that we could have both the balloon but also the thrill of letting the balloon go. Did they re- did they replace the balloon? Often. Often enough that it was worth the risk. Um, we also would pretend to go perfume shopping and we would go into the department stores and ask for samples and you you always got like disappointed when they did the like spray the perfume mm-hmm. on a card but you got bananas psyched when they gave you the little in vial. a tube vial here's the trick kids i really hope a lot of kids are listening <laughs> i really hope we're so ruining far, a lot of lives so your story is mm-hmm, super mm-hmm, appropriate mm-hmm. for middle school super but listen kids here's my advice 
If you keep trying to get those perfume samples because you're pretending to buy perfume for your mom's birthday and they're giving you the card and spraying on it because they're on to you, they don't want to waste the good ones. Here's what you do. You walk around the mall first and you go into the fanciest stores. You go into Tiffany's, what, whatever. You go into Saks. Ask them if they have a spare shopping bag. Say your bag broke and get as many as you can shopping bags. Disperse your items, your shitty sunglasses, your lip gloss in those bags. And then, then you go into the department stores and you hold the bags where they're obvious and you say, I'm shopping for my mom's birthday and I'd like some samples of perfume because now they know you mean business. You're here to play. You've got um, money. That's actually brilliant, Quinn. So you're welcome I'm for that very impressed. tip. Um, back to the story. These girls did not get to spend a lot of time together because, like I said, um, Sarah's 15, Amy's 13. So they're, they've are they got the high school, middle school divide. Mm, so yeah. they're psyched. The plan was that Jennifer, the big sister, is going to drop the girls off at the mall when she goes to ICBY because it's just a couple blocks. And then they're going to goof around at the mall. Then they're going to go to the ICBY toward closing time and help the girls close because with all four of them closing, it's going to be hella fast. Then they can leave together. But I want you to know this was actually the first time that Amy and Sarah had ever been allowed to go to the mall before on their own. Because they were 13 and 15, did you say? Yeah, and probably they were only allowed to go because they were in close proximity to her big sister. Jennifer, yeah. Yeah. Amy has burned the least severely of the girls. Her body is farther away from the apex of the fire where all the other girls were. Their bodies were together. The summation of events is basically that all four girls were shot in the back of the head with a 22. All four were likely raped, though that's somewhat inconclusive due to the condition of the bodies. Amy's body was the least badly burned, and it was confirmed she was sexually assaulted. She's also the only one that shot twice, once with a 22, and then she was shot again with another higher caliber uh, weapon. She also had some bruising and was strangled. So there's more we know about what went on with her. But we also don't know if the same set of affairs as far as like maybe getting beat up at all first would have happened to the other girls because their bodies just couldn't tell that story. They have all been bound with their own clothing. And uh, like I said, Eliza's body was stacked on Sarah's. Jennifer's was kind of right next to them. It's also not clear if maybe they had all been stacked. And when the fire got put out, it the pressure of the water moved the bodies. Um, But Amy was definitely further away, like toward the front of the shop. So it almost felt like there was, because she shot twice in her body's farther, it feels like it could be telling the story that there was some sort of extra struggle Mm -hmm. that took place with her. There was also an ice cream scoop, very seemingly deliberately placed between one of the girl's spread legs. And the register had been emptied, which was about like $500. Oh, my God. It's a frozen yogurt place. Yeah. So how that night should have gone, like what we know about closing procedure is that the girl working with Eliza would have finished her shift when Jennifer came in to take over. So Jennifer and Eliza are the closing shift. They'd have worked together from 8 to close. And at 1050, they'd have flipped the open sign to closed on the front door and they'd have locked the door from the inside, even if people were still inside. And mm-hmm. then if people needed to leave, they'd go and unlock it for them. Uh, yeah. And while the doors locked, they would have deposited 
the drawer into the safe in the office and they would have started their cleaning duties. And then when they were all done, they'd have left through the front door, locked it from the outside and put the envelope uh, with the key to the door under the door. That's Mm -hmm. what they would have done. Um, What we know about that night is that customers uh, recall Eliza making a call around 930 to home and trying to get her little sister, Sonora, to ride her bike to the shop, but she didn't. Other customers recall that the two youngest girls, uh, Sarah and Amy, left the shop to get a pizza and ate it at one of the tables in the shop uh, while Jennifer and Eliza worked. Between 9.30 and 10, Daryl Croft, who's a 52-year-old former military policeman, came into the shop, and he says he observed a fidgety young man in a green coat and like right away clocked him as Mm -hmm. somebody that had odd behavior. The guy was like acting shifty and kind of like kept letting people go ahead of him in line. Like he couldn't decide what he was Mm going to get. And then he says to Croft, is that your car out there with the lights on top? And wanted to know, like, are you police? Are you security? What a weird line of questioning. So yeah, he's it's like, like double down weirded out by him. And then this weirdo guy finally orders and he gets like vanilla seven up. No, like a seven up. And that's then go, even weirder. Yeah, well, I'm like, if you take that long, you better be like, I want a fudge sundae, sub caramel for fudge, half vanilla, half strawberry, add the rainbow sprinkles, but no nuts. Like you better be like, mm-hmm. this took me a long time because I'm doing it exactly right. Yeah. You ordered a 7-Up. That is the fishiest part to me. So suspect. That's one of many sightings slash suspicions. Because, you know, when one of these things happens, everybody that was there that day now is reevaluating because they are frustrated. They're angry. They're upset. They want to be helpful. So I've said it once. I'll say it before. Say it before. I have a hard time trusting the eyewitnesses as we've yeah you know as we've discovered but yeah. i also do trust that as a police officer being like this was fishy behavior well so I'm- the eyewitness account that i think is the most important possibly is the one closest to closing time so mm-hmm. at 10:42 the last sale that was made was to a couple that came in after the movies and when the couple came in they said they saw two large people in hooded jackets in booth number five that's Mm -hmm. a booth that was closest to the register and that they left the store like five minutes later they got like their sunday or whatever to go they leave at 10 47 now remember the girls are gonna go flip the sign at 10 50 so if these guys are still inside these two hooded figures at 10 47 my money is that they were there when those girls are flipping the closed sign yeah and they never came forward to say we're the people that were like the last people in there. So you also were like, that feels really fishy. Not to yeah. mention. It was hot um, and they had a hooded jacket. Was it hot? I don't know. It's if it, December. I don't know if it was I hot. don't think it's, Austin's oh, it's December. December. No. Also, the shop manager coming in after the crime was able to kind of see how far the girls had gotten into closing before it had halted, which is to say. Jennifer's back seemed like it was to the front door and Eliza was behind the cash register. She was running a rag over the counter and something happened because they see the rag left mid wipe with like a handprint sort of in it. 
um, oh. as though you like were wiping and let go of it. There's also a can of Coke on the counter and a styrofoam cup that would have had ice in it. What else Ugh. do we know? The cash register was an old tape machine. And the last sale recorded of the night was a no sale, which would just pops the drawer open. And that was at 11.03. So that would have been 13 so, minutes yeah. after they had clo- closed. Now, you would have probably popped out the no sale to do your closing. But it also mm-hmm. seems like that could have been the initiation of the robbery. Okay. Which would have happened first, maybe, and then the attacks. The booth that I mentioned, those hooded figures, sat in booth five, had no napkins in the napkin dispenser and didn't have a chair stacked on it, but every other table did when they came to the scene of the crime. So again, if you've ever worked in the service industry, and I have, one thing you do to get people the fuck out at the end of the night is you start cleaning around them. You would never clean their table, obviously, but you start going around and cleaning every other table that you can so that when they leave, you've only got that one last thing to do. And it Mm -hmm. seems like the fact that there's no napkins and no chair stacked, there were people sitting there. Well, and I also bring it up because a lot of people say that the back door was broken into. The evidence is all fucked anyway, which I'll get to in a minute. But this, to me, is a really clear narrative that the killers were in the store when the girls closed it. Also, it feels like the Coke can being on the counter. Maybe they didn't go up and, like, say, we're going to rob you right away. They, like, went up and said, can I have a Coke? She turned to fill the styrofoam cup with ice, and when she turned back around, she has a gun on her. Yeah. So due to the condition of the bodies, the girls would first be identified by figuring out who owns the two cars in the lot, which was Jennifer's and Eliza's car. Um, It was also clear from the amount of blood that the girls all died from being shot prior Mm -hmm. to the fire being lit. Arson damaged a ton of the crime scene, and water obviously damaged a ton of the crime scene from putting it out, but they still could have done a lot to preserve what they had, and they did a really bad job. We hear about this a lot, but it's one of those things like Jean Benet, where when there's a town that's never dealt with something really horrific like this, the police force isn't used to it, and they make a lot of mistakes unfortunately they lost evidence they didn't wear booties when they went in they didn't have a sign in and out sheet of going in and out of the crime scene the bathroom wasn't dusted for prints the trash wasn't examined and most importantly or very importantly they didn't swab the bodies for accelerant so they would never be 100 percent sure how the fire was set Which ends up being really important. Um, So the town wants answers. They're pissed. And one city official says of the girls, we know them. They are ours. And they were described Mm. constantly as angels, as pure. I mean, they're they're children. And it just rocked the community to the core. Because of all the false confessions and crazy tips, the police make a list of 13 pieces of key evidence that they want to be withheld from the public. So Mm -hmm. that if somebody comes forward, they have certain things that are like only the killer would know. But (laughs) that just doesn't work. That doesn't work because it's like gossip. Like it's like one guy knows a thing and tells his wife who tells her hairdresser who. And and it's just like suddenly the evening news is like there was an ice cream scoop found between the the so-and-so's legs. And it's like that was one of our pieces. And it just keeps happening. 
So three days shy of a month, the tips are finally like slowing down to 10 a day. And the FBI creates a personality profile for who they think did this. Um, They think it was more than one person and that one of them was a leader with a dominant personality. They were probably white uh, in their late teens to early 20s. The dominant one didn't finish high school and probably had discipline problems and was impulsive and engaged in physical confrontations whenever they knew they had the upper hand. So just a fucking bully. Um, History of changes of jobs, um, lives with or is in a dependent relationship with someone older or a parent. And at this point is probably developing paranoia about their accomplice. So the vibe is like, The dominant one has no regrets, but the accomplice might. And the dominant one is starting to be, like, scared. Mm -hmm. So it might lead to a violent altercation that would hopefully reveal what happened. They also think that whoever did this went to a secure location afterwards to clean up and either left town right away or may have obviously returned to the scene of the crime, as we know a lot of criminals do. Then some billboards go up. With pictures of the victims that say, who killed these girls? And they don't even list their names because it's that kind of case. Do you know what I mean? Where you just had to put the pictures up and go, who killed these girls? Reward, $25,000. Here's the tip number. You don't even need to say their names. Everybody fucking knows their names. Mm -hmm. Um, And that number of $25,000 increases to $100,000 because local businesses start being like, we'll throw in. Three months afterwards, Jones, that we were just talking about, He writes to the chief, everything that can be tried is, including some things that have never been tried and go against the previous conventional wisdom of homicide investigations in this department. He's at his wit's end. Um, They're trying to figure it out. At one point, the investigation focuses on Satanists. Um, Of course. Well, of course it does. It's such a dark scene that they come upon that they're like, it can't be a normal person. Remind me the year. 91. I feel like satanic panic was like so common late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, definitely. I'll just give you this little nugget because I gave me a little giggle. So they uh, they end up actually raiding the house of someone that is like known as a high priestess in the Satanist community. <laughs> and they their raid interrupts her having a moment with her vibrator oh i love that <laughs> so they're anecdote. right away like oh, oh i love that sorry. anecdote so much <laughs> ooh, ooh, that's so, excuse like, that me high priestess so excuse awkward me. <laughs> <laughs> um they just Whoa. wanted to pin it on somebody yeah so they wanted answers oh and another lead that doesn't go anywhere but that i also thought was totally interesting was that the icby manager calls and says that Months prior to the murders, she and Jennifer had gotten harassing phone calls at home and at work, and her apartment, not Jennifer's, her apartment had been burglarized, and the intruder didn't take anything, like TV jewelry, but arranged her underwear on her bed and put a knife on it. And then she was like, well, me and Jennifer look a lot alike. Maybe he was going after me or something. (laughs) Wait, she's, that's fucking terrifying. She, wait, it gets crazier. She says in her police interview, she's like, just so you know, there's like a crawl space above the ICBY that connects the hillside shops to one another. And one time when I came in the bathroom to clean, I saw footprints on the toilet seat. 
<gasps> How scary oh, is that? Like someone could have dropped in that. through the bathroom. Oh, but God. this kind of is just like another one of those, like another tip, another confession, yeah. another dead end. So um, one of the other things that happens early in the game that comes back later is that there's this young man, Maurice Pierce, who's at the North Cross Mall and is stopped for having a gun. And during questioning, which lasts forever, and he's a kid, he ends up saying that his friend, Forrest Wellborn, who's 15, used it to commit the yogurt shop murders. And Wellborn denies any involvement um, and says to investigators, I was with Pierce, but I was also with my friends Rob Springsteen and Mike Scott, and we had a joyride to San Antonio in a stolen SUV. So everyone's kind of, that whole group of guys, those four boys, are being clocked now by the cops. But one thing to know is Jones is the investigator at this time. He dismisses the whole thing because they end up testing the twenty-two ballistics and it's not it's it's just it's not the gun used and also maurice is a kid and the confession just doesn't ring true to him at all it doesn't match up with what the other kids say whatever in 93 so we're two years later they start to cut back a lot obviously on the investigation jones is still on the case but he is super he's obsessed with the case but he's also getting really depressed and he writes a memo asking for more support and permission to have more people on it full time And over time, the case is totally destroying him. It's destroyed his marriage. He asks for time off because he kind of needs it. It's denied. But he's displaying more than 90% of the symptoms of somebody that has PTSD at this point. And it's about the case. Like, it's killing him. So the guy in charge at this point is working alone and fucking losing it. Losing it. So three years after the crime, he actually ends up getting promoted and transferred to another assignment, which for his mental health, thank fucking God, honestly. And yeah. the newly detective that gets put on it, Paul Johnson, they're hoping he'll just have like a clear head and see something no one else saw. And he gets equally obsessed with trying to solve the case. Um, but he yeah. also gets really hung up on the guys I just told you about, those four boys and Maurice, Maurice's false confession. He's mm-hmm. like... I don't know. So he's six, senior sergeant, Hector Polanco, detective, on it. Let me just tell you about Polanco for a minute. So he is somebody that always said he had the ability to pluck guilt from a suspect's heart. What he really had the ability at was generating false confessions. Yeah. He was like awesome at that. Awesome at that. Let me just tell you a couple incidents. He got a 22-year-old Mexican-American Christopher Ochoa to confess to a brutal rape and murder that happened at a pizza hut. He just, like, scared the shit out of him. The kid confesses. He signs a statement, and it also implicates his friend Richard Danzinger. Danzinger got life in jail, and six years later, while he's in jail, the real perpetrator confesses with details that only he would have known— But by then, Danzinger has been attacked by a fellow inmate and kicked in the head with a steel-toed boot and has permanent brain damage. So his life totally ruined by this guy. Um, Polanco got a man once who reported his wife missing to confess that actually he killed his wife. And he's like, take me to the field where you buried her and dig up her body. And the guy's like, okay. And he starts to dig And then gets a call on his mobile phone from his wife 
And she's <gasps> like, why are you telling people you killed me? <laughs> okay, so Polanco sounds like the game in which he was named after in Price is Right. Just like a lot of balls going like, blink, blink, blink. I think that's Plinko, but yes. Yeah. Same. Oh, fuck. And they stuck him on these kids. Here's the thing. They sicked him on, e- on these kids. I will, like, spoiler alert you that he will later be taken off the case and fired on the grounds of suspicion of perjury. But I will also tell you that he was the guy that got to be alone in rooms with these kids eight years after the crime. So they're not really kids anymore. They're young men in their 20s. But he still is the guy that gets sicked on them and... Let's go back in time and say that I think it's like eight days after the murder, Maurice Pierce, who's 16, has this 22, and his pal Forrest Welburn, who's 15, are fooling around at the North Cross Mall, and an off-duty cop takes the gun from them and asks why they had it. And Maurice says, just to be carrying it, which actually feels super right for a kid. True. Yeah. yeah. By the next morning, Maurice had said that the 22 was probably the gun used in the yogurt shop murders and that Forrest might be the one who did it. He said he gave the gun to Forrest at one point and they separated. And when Forrest came back, the gun had been shot and Forrest had a scratch on his neck and smelled like hairspray. Everything about this story is stupid. Like the hairspray is supposed to be an accelerant, I guess, that he used to start the fire. Everything about it's wrong. And it's a false confession. That won't even match the false confessions they get years later from Springsteen and Scott. 17-year-old Springsteen doesn't get along with his stepdad. And so he moves in with his dad. And his dad has a second condo. And he's like, convert it to a place I can live so I still am independent. And they do. And he moves in with his friend, Mike Scott. The morning of December 6th, the dad calls Austin Teleserve and says his son is missing hasn't been in school and hasn't seen him since the night of the 4th and that he thinks Michael Scott is also missing. Michael Scott? I know, I know, I know. (laughs) Mike Scott. He goes by Mike. It's hard not to say (laughs) Michael Scott, though. Just rolls off the tongue. And I love that guy. This is like neither here nor there, but there's enough things like this that the police like where they're like, Mm -hmm. oh, and the dad reported the miss that they get super attached to this narrative that these four kids had something to do with it. Um, We've seen this before where they just like white knuckle onto these theories and then do anything in their power to prove that they're true while ignoring the actual truth. So the the like method is called the read technique, I guess, which it's the method they use when they're interrogating uh, the kids. And a lot of cops say that it gives you confessions, but they're not necessarily true. That's just part of the method. So first, Polanco goes to work on Mike, which looks something like saying, you know, we don't think you did it, but we think you have knowledge of who did. And we think you were forced to maybe do things you didn't want to do. And if you tell us, you'll be in a better position. Um, They start to feed Mike details of the crime scene and they get him to confess. They're like implanting false memories and he's internalizing their suggestions till he believes they could be memories. He says at some point, I think I should talk to a lawyer. And the cops just leave the room and then come back in and start questioning him again. And that's pretty illegal. But they mm-hmm. said, oh, we just thought that he was thinking about getting a lawyer. He didn't really bring it up again. But they're just finding a way to not get this kid help. And if you read a transcript of his confession... It's 
sort of like a fucked up game of charades where they're like, what did you tie them up with? And he'll be like, a cord? And they'll be like, not a cord. And he'll be like, napkins? And they'll be like, napkins wouldn't work to tie somebody up. It's like that. Gosh. Till he gets it right. And they're like, exactly. Their own clothing. You did it. Like, it's so fucked. And at one point, they come in the room and they either, it's not clear visually, but they either put a gun to the back of his head or their finger and pretend it's a gun and poke him. And they say they're just trying to help jog his memory. But like he thinks a gun is to his head. So I'm sorry. He confessed. He's a kid. He confessed when he thought he had a gun to his head. And he's been this in there for hours. This all just hours. feels super duper illegal. And also like so any defense attorney could dispute Well, we'll talk about what happens in court, but they get Rob the same way. So they get two of them, Rob and Mike, to confess. And Rob, it's just a similar set of affairs, including like Rob that night went and saw a midnight showing of Rocky Horror Picture Show. That's like his alibi, essentially. And I remember at one point reading the transcript and they say something like, what if we told you there was no showing of Rocky Horror Picture Show that night? But the thing is, the way they phrase that is like, there was. They just say, what if we told you there wasn't? But by saying that, he then is starting to second guess, wait, maybe I have the wrong night. So already he's open to like suggestion of, you don't remember what happened that night, do you? Could this have happened? Could this have happened? Um, And they get him to do a fucking false confession and they try as hard as they can to kind of make it match up with anything Mike said. Yeah. Forrest and Maurice don't give confessions other than that first really weird confession that has nothing to do with what Mike and Rob say that Maurice gave years ago. Yeah. So it's garbage, the whole thing. Charges against Forrest Welburn are dropped when an Austin grand jury fails to indict him. Charges are later dropped against Pierce. The only thing they had on Maurice was Springsteen and Scott saying he was there. And they obviously refuse to testify because they end up, well, they end up being like, no, we want to, what do you call it, revoke your confession or whatever? Recant, I believe is the word. Yeah, they're like, no. So the only cases that actually go to trial are the cases against Scott and Springsteen. And they play the other's confession at the trial. So at Scott's trial, they read Springsteen's confession or they play it. Uh, I guess, the tape of it, and vice versa. But what's fucked up is neither one shows up in person to the other one's trial because they'll just stand up and say, that's not what happened, and here's why I was, and I was coerced into giving a false confession. So they just play it like it's the only fact. So no one brings up at the trial that the ballistics don't fucking match. And... The defense keeps being like, there's no physical evidence to link any of these kids to the shop. Back when it happened, the arson expert says that the shelf was lit on fire and that's where the fire originated. And they get the arson expert in trial to revoke that and say, no, it actually happened the way that Springsteen and Scott are saying it happened, which is that the girls were set on fire. The bodies were set on fire, which we don't know really how they got that guy to do that, but... I'm not that surprised. No. In trial, Bob Ayers, Amy's dad, gives like a really 
horrible, sad, moving speech about his loss. And the defense lawyer, Sawyer, (laughs) um, says he didn't want to follow it up with a yes, but. Do you know what I mean? About his client. Like he wanted to be respectful. So he only ends up taking six minutes of his allotted 30 minutes to argue in their final arguments. So he sounds like he had a hack of a defense attorney. Well, the defense comes back later and like makes amends. But this trial is such garbage. They end up going to Springsteen and saying to him, if you testify against the others, we'll take the death penalty off the table. And he refuses. And he says, they didn't do anything wrong. Neither did I. But I got myself into this mess. So I have to get myself out. And he ends up getting the death penalty. Michael Scott gets life in prison. But wait, that can't be the end of the story. No. It's not the end. In 2006, the Texas Court of Appeals overturns Springsteen's conviction on the basis of an unfair trial, and they end up overturning Mike's as well. Why? Because neither was allowed to face their accusers. So in other words, Springsteen says, we did it, and they play it in trial, but then Mike should get to have him in the courtroom to get to respond. But they wouldn't show up at each other's trials because they were both like, no, that didn't fucking happen. Do you understand? Like, you should be able to face your accuser. And the person accusing them, they never got to face in trial. Basically, they accused each other, but they didn't, they couldn't, they didn't. But they would have to in person go on the stand. Refute it. Yes. So, Hmm. okay, Springsteen could not challenge the substance of Scott's confession because Scott didn't show up at the trial. In March 2008 they get these up-to-date ystr tests like these fucking dna tests that reveal previously undetected full male dna profiles at the crime scene in amy Ayer's vaginal swab and it matches none of the defendants but the prosecution guess what they do so instead of saying no here's what they do instead of being like oh Sorry, wrong guys. They're like, ah. There was was somebody else. Yes, exactly. Exactly. They can't let it go. So they're like, there's a whole circus of people that were there that night. Um, The defense is like, when DNA excludes a suspect, then the prosecution has to come up with a theory of the crime that explains it. And they really don't do that. Um, And then a second unknown male DNA profile is found at the scene on bindings. So now it's like there are two guys there that were not our four guys. It's not fucking six guys. It's these two guys that we still haven't found, okay? The same unknown male DNA that was found in Amy Ayers was also found in Jennifer Harbison's sample, as well as DNA of her boyfriend, Sammy. And DNA from Sammy, as well as the unknown male, was found in Sarah Harbison. What does that mean? It sort of means that what it looks like is probably somebody raped Jennifer. Yeah. And took a piece of Sammy's DNA with him and then raped her sister, and so yeah. she's showing the Both. unknown male and Sammy's. Anyway, and then the thir- the other DNA was found on the bindings. So the DNA does indicate two unknown males. On Wednesday, June 24th, 2009, Judge Mike Lynch ruled that the defendants, Springsteen and Scott, would be freed on bond. So they've been in jail 10 years, pending their upcoming trials. And they both walk out of jail that day. So that was a happy day. In December 2010, Austin police officer Frank Wilson and his rookie partner conduct a traffic stop on a vehicle, and it's Maurice Pierce in the vehicle. And 
he's his whole life become totally, totally scared of the police. Like they're after him because he's watched them try to put him in jail his whole life for this crime. So he kind of goes bananas when they pull him over and pulls a knife and stabs Wilson in the neck. And Wilson, who survives, pulls his gun and shoots Pierce. So that's what happened to Maurice Pierce. Oh, my God. And Rob Springsteen in 2012 asked his lawyer about filing a claim for what's called actual innocence. And that allows him to receive compensation for being wrongfully convicted. But his conviction had been voided like it never happened. So technically to overturn. So he didn't qualify for it. Exactly. He was never exonerated. So it fell between the cracks and there's he doesn't there's no remedy for him. I don't even think Scott fought for it. I think he was so, like, fucked up by the whole thing that he just walked away and didn't even want to look back. Of course. The last thing I want to say is just that um, the author of this crazy book, Beverly Lowry, went to the site of where the ICBY once stood. Mm -hmm. It's now a nail salon. And she asked a woman working there, do you know what this used to be? And the woman answered by taking her over to a shelf inside the shop that had a jar of incense in it. And she said, we burn one every morning in memory of the girls. So this is still an unsolved crime. It's still unsolved. I'm so sorry to say. And I had to take you on that ride of injustice because there's just so many crazy characters at play. That hurt. And the reason I think it's worth talking also about all this horrible injustice that happened to these young men is that, as we know, uh, when the cops are so focused on the wrong guys, there's no room for them to even look for the right guys. And it fucks up the case in this way where now we're 30 years later and we don't know who did this. And it's even more unlikely we'll ever know. Because all this time was fucking wasted looking at the wrong dudes. Ugh. Let's hear about a shark attack. Thank God. I don't know. Mine I felt was really spooky. When I was researching it, it's it scared the shit out of me because then they showed pictures of sharks and I got I really scared. like to picture you like in a room afraid of a shark. It's just my, so good. My palms were sweaty. My knees were weak. My arms were spaghetti. Okay, it was. You paint quite a picture. (laughs) I was careful of those spaghetti arms. Sharks really like spaghetti. They like people, apparently. So, uh, thanks for sharing that story, Quinn. I'm sorry. You're welcome, and I'm sorry. And I, I, here's the thing: I read the book, and then I was like, I don't even want to present the story because I felt so saddened about it. And then I was like, you read a whole book, girl. You gotta do something. I mean, the book that I just finished, which I'll plug my book, was Tana French's Into the Woods. And Tana French is a great (gasps) – have you read her? Yes. She's great. That's a great book. It is. I love it. I love a PI. I, the reason I like it is because it's it's usually solved. There's a little bow on top. Yes. I'm gonna have to read another book just to like cleanse. Does she have <laughs> other ones? Because I love that one. She has like a whole a whole deal spread. Yeah. Of um, PI. Yeah, because I really love the Robert Gilbraith books, which are J.K. Rowling pseudonym. Do you know this? Oh, I don't. 
Okay, there's the um, Cormoran Strike novels written by Robert Gilbraith, and it was J.K. Rowling after um, she wrote Harry Potter. She wrote Casual Vacancy, which was her book, and then it got bad reviews. And she was like, I can't fucking compete with myself. Like, I wrote Harry Potter. I don't – I'm going to get compared to that the rest of my career. Smart. So she wrote, she wrote these books under Robert Gilbraith. They got amazing reviews. And then she was like, psych, it's been me the whole time. Um, oh, I love that. Here we go. This is the story of the 1919 <laughs> – this is the story of the 1916 shark attacks. You heard it right, 1916. So before this time – there were all these scientists and stuff and people that were like, sharks are not dangerous. Sharks mm-hmm. do not eat people. There's This is not a real thing. So much so that there was this like millionaire athlete who would jump into shark-infested waters in front of his friends to prove that sharks were not dangerous creatures. They were just big old fish with big old teeth. So come 1916, it's July 1st, Okay. So there is a heat wave. uh, This is at the Jersey Shore. So there's a crazy heat wave. And the polio epidemic was going on in the U.S. And this drove thousands of people to seaside resorts in the Jersey Shore. So it was also the first time that people were swimming in oceans. I don't know if you remember. Women couldn't really wear bathing suits because it was like, oh, no, the poor men. Um, so they were like in wool dresses. But the dudes were like, sick, let's swim in the ocean. And this is like a newfound thing. So July 1st, there's this place, Beach Haven, which is a resort town in southern New Jersey. Um, there's this guy called... Charles Epton Vansant. Vansant? I don't know if, how to say his name. I like Vansant. Looks like Vansant. So he decided to take a swim um, right before dinner into the ocean, the Atlantic, if you're nasty. He sees this retriever. He goes into the water. He swims 50 yards out and he's chest, he's tits deep in the water. And he's trying to convince the dog to come. It's like this Chesapeake retriever, whatever the hell that is. So he's convincing the dog to come play with him. And there's these people on the beach that are watching him. And they see this like large, dark shape lingering in the water. And he's calling the dog to come over. And all of a sudden, his dogs turn into scream. And the shark takes his leg. He starts screaming. And they thought it was him calling the dog, but a shark was attacking his legs. What? So the on-duty lifeguard, and who is a friend of the victim, rushes into the water. Vincent's sister, Louise, is watching this happen from the shore. Oh, um, my God. And so the lifeguard formed a human chain with a bunch of people, and they pull him out of the water. But the dark shape of the shark didn't let go from the young man until his stomach scraped the bottom of the sand. So the shark was tailing them into they're like onto just the shore. pulling the shark with the guy mm-hmm. the whole mm-hmm. time. The which whole time. would also be so crazy. This is like the first time this is happening, right? Wow. So um no one could really estimate the size of the shark. So they noticed Vincent was lighter than usual and they looked down and he was missing all of one leg and most of the other. They tried to do a tourniquet. They brought him into the Beth Angleside Hotel where 
he lost too much blood and he died on the manager's desk. Whoa. Okay. So the beaches remained open. So this is July 1st and this is close to 4th of July. So So many witnesses to this. I can't imagine going back to the beach. So no one really... They thought even they, the articles at the time were like, oh, we think it was a large fish. They didn't say shark. They said maybe a shark. But again, sharks were not this like It wasn't evil. obvious. They exactly. were like, it could have been a really angry octopus with a knife. <laughs> exactly. It, in with, the, ni- in, with different with weapons in each <laughs> fucking tentacle. So also is it was right before July 4th. So... They didn't want to effectively lose all this revenue from July 4th weekend. Right. God forbid. God forbid. So the beaches stayed open, but there were more sightings of large sharks swimming off the coast of New Jersey. So July 4th happens, then July 6th, 1916. In Spring Lake, New Jersey, 45 miles north of the previous attack, This guy, Charles Bruder, who was 27, he was a Swiss bell captain at a hotel, was a very good swimmer. He swam 130 yards to the shore, or from the shore. He swam 130 yards to the shore. People are watching from the beaches, and they notice this guy screaming. The water turns red, and this woman had theater glasses like binoculars and she noticed what was happening like opera like opera glasses for sure they noticed hearing screams she calls two lifeguards and says something's going on she thinks there's a canoe capsized and is floating on the water surface with a red hull she says the lifeguards take the canoe go out and they notice bruder's body flung in the air as the shark (gasps) tore his legs off oh my god so she described it as an airplane attacks a zeppelin lifeguards rode to the boat and found him bitten by the shark when they arrived he yelled a shark bit me bit my legs off they pull him from the water they see everything below the knee had been torn away and he went into total shock and he bled to death on the way to the shore Holy shit. Mm-hmm. That so, is nuts. Do you after, think it was the same shark? We'll get to that. Okay, okay, okay. This is when media starts going. I can't wait going, till we get to the shark trial. <laughs> and they get a I confession. Hate to say it. Spoiler alert, still unsolved. Um, <laughs> the, this is at this point where the media started getting involved because it was highly sensationalized, right? This is the first time this has ever been documented. It's really fucking scary. The New York Times says women were panic-stricken and fainted at Bruder's mutilated body was brought ashore, which I well, call you bullshit. Know women. I know. I was like, <laughs> bullshit. Fucking everyone was. Um, it was saying. <laughs> you know uh, us women. <laughs> us women faint apart. I was like, I'm sorry. If you can stand having your period for every month, you can send a little blood. Hundreds of people, mostly very high society folks, were witness to the brutal attack. Women fainted and vomited, both from heat and the shock of what they saw. Reality, everyone did. The um, guests, I thought this was nice, the guests and the workers from the Essex and Sussex and neighboring hotels raised money for Bruder's mother in Switzerland, which I thought was very nice. So at this point, people were like, holy shit, I guess sharks are dangerous. Then 
Wednesday, July 12th at this place called Matawan Creek, which is 30 miles north of Spring Lake. So the first one was 45 and then this was 30 miles north. This was not a resort town. This was like a very small town area in New Jersey. What made it unique was it was a freshwater creek. Mm -hmm. It was attached to the bay and it did have some salt in it. But for the most part, it was 11 miles from the open ocean. Mm-hmm. It was the ocean, the bay, and then it went to this creek, right? So this sea captain was riding his ship, and he noticed an eight-foot shark in the creek. And so he goes, oh, my God, I've heard about these shark attacks. He goes and he tells the town. The town goes, you're crazy, dude. We live in a fucking creek. And these at 2 p.m., there was a group of young boys including this boy, Lester Stilwell, who's 11 years old, and they were swimming in the creek together. Now, one of the boys had their dog in there, um, but everyone was swimming off this place called Wyckoff Dock. They saw this old, black, weather-beaten board or weather log, or so they sh- or so they thought. And little Lester, the 11-year-old, says, Watch me float, fellas. A dorsal fin appears... And the boys realize it's a shark. And Lester, before he could climb out of the creek, the shark pulled him under the water. Oof. Oof. That is so scary. So scary. So the boys freak out and they run. They're all skinny dipping. So they run naked in the middle of the town and they go, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, Lester, he got got taken by a shark. A shark bit him, a shark. How old are they? 10, 11. 11. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody believes them. Lester had a history of epilepsy. So they go, it was probably a seizure. So a bunch of guys come back and they go in, including this guy, Stanley Fisher, who was 24. He was a tailor in town. He dives into the water along with a bunch of other guys to find the body of Lester, who they believe had an epileptic seizure. Stanley Fisher finds the body and he's dragging the body to shore. While he's dragging the body to shore... A shark comes and bites Stanley Fisher, drags him under. Stanley drops Lester's body, and they pull him out of the water. They manage to get him away. To get Stanley from the out? Water, to get Stanley out. Lester's body is gone for the moment. His Fisher's right thigh was severely injured, and he bled to death at Monmouth Memorial Hospital. Holy, everybody's dying. Everybody's no survivors. Dying. Not 30 minutes later, this boy, Joseph Dunn, was swimming about half a mile from Wyckoff Dock. And a shark came and bit his leg. Wow. His brother, happening? Like 30 minutes after Stanley <sighs> Fisher was attacked. Okay. That makes me think it's a different shark for the record. Okay. I just want to put in my two cents on that. Fair. His brother and friend played a vicious game of tug-of-war with a shark, as they say. A part of his left leg was bitten off. He was taken to St. Peter's University Hospital in New Brunswick, New Jersey, and he is the only one to have recovered from the bite and was released September 15th, 1916. And everybody else died. So there are four deaths and one survivor. And this is all one town, one summer. This is all in Jersey. This is... July 12th, there were two deaths in the one injury, and then there was July 1st and July 6th. 
So it's like so a between two July first mm-hmm, and July twelfth, there were oh, five, four deaths, one injury. Word. Yeah, horrible, right? So at this point in July, July fourteenth, they did end up recovering Lester's body that was one hundred and fifty yards away from where Stanley Fisher was attacked. So they were able to recover the young boy's body. So this is the first time we had any crazy shark attacks on record, and it created major shark panic. So the media went crazy. It was incredibly sensationalized. Obviously, it's terrifying. At first, scientists, like I said, were reluctant to blame the death on a shark, saying he was badly bitten in the surf by a fish, presumably a shark. They claimed, as you notice in two of the stories, there were dogs in the water. It's so weird that they're like, it seems like they're protecting sharks. Like, I'm like... Were sharks contributing to these guys' political campaigns? Like, <laughs> when were any of them married to sharks? Like, I'm just like, why? <laughs> What's the motive? Why are you caring so much about the sharks? But again, because there was all these, and I'll, I'll get into it, there were a lot of scientists who had claimed for years that sharks were not dangerous. Mm. And so I think there was a lot of like, this is unfounded. This is uncharted waters, essentially. Mm-hmm. They claimed that the shark had bit the people, even though the shark was actually going after the dog, which I'm going, I don't think a shark knows the fucking difference between a dog and a person. That seems insane. So the state fish commissioner, because yes, that's a fucking job, and the former director of the Philadelphia Aquarium specifically de-emphasized the threat sharks pose to human. So... This is right after Charles Von Sant's death. And he says, despite the death of, of Charles Von Sant and the report of two sharks having been caught in that vicinity recently, I do not believe there is any reason why people should hesitate to go in swimming at the beaches for fear of man eaters. The information in regard to the sharks is indefinite, and I hardly believe that Von Sant was ri- bitten by a man eater. Von Sant was in the surf playing with his dog, and it may be the small shark had drifted into high water and was marooned by the tide. Being unable to move quickly and without food, he had come in to bite the dog and snapped at the man in passing. My oh. favorite theory is that there were a bunch of scientists at the time who go, you know what I think it was? A turtle. Turtles are really aggressive, and they snap, and they're ferocious. I don't think a whole human leg could fit inside a turtle's body. Quinn, these turtles are fucking huge, apparently. This is 1916. It was a different time. But yes. So as- Turtle time, as Ramona Singer would say, it (laughs) was turtle time. (laughs) So obviously, the more deaths that occurred in within two weeks, the more media called it, they named it the Jersey Maneater. Which I always thought that was just an episode of Jersey Shore. She's but a no. man eater. Okay. Make it work hard. Shark, some of like the um, the titles of newspaper articles were shark kills, ba- shark kills bather off Jersey Shore. So that was on the front page of the New York Times, I believe. The growing panic in New Jersey cost resort owners 250000 or $5.9 million in lost tourism. That's 5.9 in our day. Um, and sunbathing declined 75% in some areas. So, so obviously, everybody's pale. A nightmare. Everybody. But people were Everyone always Everyone looks pale. like they, shit. No, they had. Everybody was pale already because I don't know if you remember the bathing costumes. It was like a full onesie. Like no one oh, was yeah. showing I still skins. <laughs> so after the first two, July 8th, they had a press conference at the American Museum of Natural History in New York um, to calm the growing panic. 
And I also learned a new word in doing this research. Do you want to know what it is? Please. It's an ichthyologist. Ichthyologist? Or it's ichthyologist. It's an I-C-T-H-Y-O-L-O-G-I-S-T. Ichthyologist? Ichthyologist. Ichthyologist. I don't know because there's an I-C-H. It sounds very German. Which basically is study of big fish, I think. I could be wrong. Moving on. Throughout that time, the shark sightings increased, and there were also reports of, on July 8th, a mar- uh, armed motorboat patrolling the beach chased an animal they thought was a shark. A lifeguard claimed to have beaten a 12-foot-long shark with an oar. There was an actress who was swimming in the Coney Island beach, and shortly after the fatalities in the creek, she claimed to have encountered a shark. She had the presence of mind to splash a lot to scare the shark away. I don't which think just that's a seems, thing. I don't think that's a thing. I know you're supposed um, to punch him in the head. You're supposed to bop him in the nose. Which always seems like a crazy thing because I'm like, you're in the water. Imagine punching in the water. I think Like you really can't get a good handle on... Uh, there's no momentum you can build there. Exactly. You, know, you can't like really wind up. Also... I'm not, we, I can swim, but I'm not, I don't live in the water like sharks do. So I have a feeling they're more well-equipped. I've heard to bop them in the yeah, nose. I think that's a fair assumption. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard to bop them in the nose and to get them in the gills and get the eyes. Get so them in I the gills, that. get them in the eyes, bop them I in the practice, nose. I practice that often. That's like your Tybo workout. That's what I do. When I'm imagining punching, like people are like, I'm going to punch a serial killer. I'm like, I'm going to bop a fucking shark in the nose bop so hard. Better bop him Also, good. I think it's important to say, and I guess now's the time to do it. Killing sharks is really bad for for our planet, for our earth, for our mm-hmm. food chain. Don't do it. Okay. That's why Although- I fight them with intimidation, <laughs> a little bit of reverse psychology. Um, I try to get them talking about their childhood, get them distracted. That's all my techniques. I mean, I'm really nice to sharks. If you if you make a shark stop moving, they can't breathe. So I just try to lull it to sleep with our podcast. I put on our podcast. Because <laughs> they're Team Kathy. And they're like, really? They're An hour? Ka- they're Team Kathy and Raydell. They're like, I like to listen to go to sleep. It's too long. <laughs> so at this point, the fucking government gets involved because five attacks in a week and a half. Hello, news. So the House of Representatives appropriated $5,000 for eradicating the New Jersey shark threat. President Woodrow Wilson scheduled a meeting with his cabinet to discuss the fatal attacks. The White House agreed to give federal aid to drive away all of the ferocious man-eating sharks which have been making prey of bathers. The Treasury Secretary at the time suggested the Coast Guard be mobilized to patrol the Jersey Shore and protect sunbathers. They put mesh nets to protect the um, to protect the beaches, and then shark hunts ensued across the coast of New Jersey and New York. And this is crazy. They killed crazy amounts of sharks. Armed shark hunters in motorboats patrolled New York and New Jersey. And they were trying to exterminate the sharks, or the man-eaters, as they call them. They offered bounties for individual hunting sharks. Hundreds of sharks were captured on the East Coast as a result of the attacks. The East Coast shark hunt has been described as the largest-scale animal hunt in history. Whoa. Wild. 
So people thought it was a northern, it was one northern swimming shark that would eventually make its way to the New York coast. So there was fear instilled in New York because it was, as you, as I mentioned earlier, it was going up, up, up. There's talks about it being nine feet long. On July 14th, there was a Wait, am I stupid that nine feet just doesn't sound like that big a shark? I'm going to tell you right now, if I was by a three foot shark, I'd be scared. I don't know if you know, nine feet is like two Judy Garlands. That's huge. Oh, well, when you put it that way. <laughs> I, I, I like to say for social distancing, keep a man eater in between us. That's what I say to people. I say, do you know how many sharks are between me and you right now? On July 14th, so two days after the last attack, this guy named Michael Schleiser, who, among his jobs, he was a Harlem taxidermist, <laughs> okay? And he also was a Barnum and Bailey lion tamer, okay? <laughs> wow, what a resume. Move over, Joe Exotic. We got a new sheriff in town. We got the OG Tiger King, honey. <laughs> So he caught he caught a seven and a half foot, three hundred and fifty pound shark while fishing in Raritan Bay, which is only a few miles from the mouth of the Matawan Creek. Okay. The shark nearly sank the boat before he killed it with a broken oar. And when he brought it to shore, they weighed it. Of course, he has, like, the picture with the shark with its mouth open. Mm-hmm. And they opened the shark's belly, and they removed suspicious fleshy material and bones that took up about two-thirds of a milk crate and together weighed 15 pounds. There was a shin bone in there, and there was a rib. Oh, for real. Human. For real. Human. Although, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm a little skeptical because I think that at this time, I'm sure people got lost at sea. So he could, I, I, you know, but it sounds pretty fishy, pun intended. Ooh, good one. So this was a young, great white shark. And scientists identify this as the shark, the man-eater, the Jersey man-eater. Oh, this was the bad guy. They this got was him. the bad, they got, but That probably I, felt good for everybody. Yeah, but I don't know if it was the same one. Oh, it from... 100% wasn't. Like, but it doesn't okay. matter. Like, it's it doesn't just, matter. It, uh, unlike my story where it does matter if you get the wrong guys, this story it doesn't. Where as long as they felt better at the end of the day and they stopped feeling like they had to run around and kill all the sharks, it was probably for the best that they were like, we got the bad one. But they were still attacked. Sharks have they a didn't stop. This is the This is the inciting incident to sharks. Sorted to Shark history, Week. Sorted past to Shark Week. Truly, it is. Um, the so, original Shark Week. <laughs> I. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have Discovery Channel, so they just watched it from their beaches. Yeah. Um, so they mounted the shark and placed it in display in a window in a Manhattan shop on Broadway. Whoa. Right? Super but it was later weird. lost, a.k.a. someone stole it. The only surviving photograph of this shark appears in the Bronx Home News. There were no more attacks in 1916 after the shark was captured, <laughs> killed. <laughs> However, they killed hundreds of other sharks. So I feel like the shark team got together and were like, yo, 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 this is not safe for us. Like, someone in our ranks fucking killed four of them, and they're coming after us hard. We got to get out of here. Mm-hmm. That's what I would talk if I was, that's how I would say it if I was amongst my shark 
compadres. And that's why a shark never killed a person again. (laughs) (laughs) There were some outliers, Quinn. (laughs) Here's what I love, though, when I found out. If there's ever anything weird happening, a tragedy, do you know what always pops up? Conspiracy theories. (gasps) Tell me. I love conspiracy theories. I live for them. (laughs) And I believe every single one that I hear. You really do. Let's see if you believe this. I already do. I haven't even heard it yet. So some people claimed it was not a shark, that it was actually an influence from the ongoing events from World War I. Okay, go on. (laughs) Another one was that they think that the German U-boats brought all the sharks to New Jersey. How? <laughs> you know, people didn't understand science. I think a lot of conspiracy, it didn't matter. It's like there's these new submarine U-boat situations in the water. Now there's shark attacks coming out of nowhere. It's 1916. We're a year before the U.S. joins. People think it was the, what happened? The U-boats, the Lusitania. People think it was the Lusitania. Uh-uh. It was the New Jersey shark attacks that brought us into World War One. This is what okay. they said about the shark infestation on German U-boats. The anonymous writer, which that's how you know someone stands by what they believe, is they write anonymously. These sharks may have devoured human bodies in the waters of the German war zone and followed liners to this coast or even followed the Deutschland herself. Expecting the usual toll of drowning men, women, and children, the writer concluded this would account for their boldness and their craving for human flesh. Hmm. All right, I'm not one over. I'm pretty I'm easy to one over, but I'm not justice. one over. I'm probably not doing it justice. But you're really not committing. I'm not, because I don't believe it. I've, I've always listened. We have to respect powerful animals in the ocean. Sharks are one of them. I, I have respect. I don't like what they do. I'm terrified of them, but that's just the case. Okay, now the Great White, the, again, what I was weird about the creek is it was in freshwater. So like 30, 40 years later, there was some more science to support some information on sharks. And one of them was that the bull shark, which has been known to swim upstream in fresh water, whereas Great Whites are less likely to. So people are like, oh my gosh, is it actually a bull shark who did the attack? But again, all of that is hearsay. Nobody actually knows. But as of today, the 1916 attacks are still listed um, in the international shark attack file as victims of a great white. So like I had said before, these sharks had been seen as just harmless fish in the sea. And after the 1916 attacks in New Jersey, public opinion swung completely to the other extreme and sharks quickly became viewed not only as eating machines but as fearless ruthless killers in 1974 writer peter benchley published the book can you guess jaws (laughs) jaws we're gonna need a bigger boat a novel about a rogue great white shark that terrorizes the fictional mid-atlantic coastal community of Amity Island, which I just like that because we just talked about Amityville. Amityville. The 1916 attacks were actually referenced in the film directed by Spielberg. And that is the first recorded attack on humans by sharks in the United States, 1916. Carrie, bravo. 
Waboom. Throw Do you have any bomb. other questions? Speaking of shark bombs, in Matawan Creek, after the shark attacks, people in the village, there's pictures of women, like, holding guns at the water, like, about to attack a shark or, like, trying to find it to shoot it. And they also exploded dynamite in the water to kill the sharks. They, they do that in um, one of the Jaws movies. One Don't of they... them. I'm I'm too afraid. It, I will, Oh, you obviously was, haven't seen them. Okay. I have seen them, and that's why I'm afraid. Oh. It's so terrifying. They are, they're excellent. At least they're so good. One, two, and three. I don't are worth I, a watch. Can I tell you while I was researching this, dear readers, you won't be able to see what I'm doing, but I'll show Quinn. While I was watching it, and they had videos of mm-hmm. this, I had to cover it with my hand because I was mm-hmm. afraid. Mm-hmm. I was so afraid. I love it when you're watching things and you have your eyes closed. It's or you're so looking hard. out from whenever I go to the movies, the movie theater to see a scary movie, I wear a big scarf so that I can like go into my scarf <laughs> here and there. And then Shark Week came around in 1988, I want to say. I think it was 88. But sharks became, I mean, obviously, they're so scary. And I don't know if Nothing they're scarier. scarier. Ugh. Except they- everything else to me because I'm not actually very scared of sharks. Sorry. Are th- I'm scared of them. This was I'm a good like, scary story, but um, I'm probably going to go scared. snorkeling later this afternoon and not worry I'll, about it. I'll get scared of sharks in a swimming pool. That's how unfounded. I'm landlocked. I li- I grew up in Chicago. Like, they're not coming up the Mississippi River to Lake Michigan. But I still am like, okay, there's something Can never be there. too safe. <laughs> the, well, these kids thought they were safe. They were not. Dear readers, this this was a very long welcome back episode. I know you don't feel like you were away from us because we were here with you last week, but we were away from each other. So <laughs> I would apologize for the length of the episode, but I'm not here to make friends. So I I'm here to make a win. podcast and Amen. I made one and it's really long and you're welcome. And it's definitely worth a quarter. Donate to Patreon. <laughs> And sharks have taste buds on the bottom of their teeth, so that's how they taste things, and that's why, that's why it's scary. I wonder if Poe is a shark. He eats his toast upside down. If you that's like just, whatever's spread on a piece of bread or a bagel, he eats it upside down. I think that's smart, actually, because I think you want to get your tea. He wants that butter direct. He wants butter to tongue touch contact his tongue quickly. To- Speaking yeah. of which, what are you going to have for lunch? I'm going to tell you what I'm going to have for dinner. I'm having fish and chips. Oh, fun. Um, it's hard for me to eat fish here because all the fish that are in Hawaii are ahi, mahi, mahi. They're the really big ones that have high mercury content, which you're really not supposed to, uh, eat while you're pregnant. Ugh. So I've been, uh, not having as much fish as I would like. Um, and for lunch, I don't know, whatever I can fucking stomach, six saltines, maybe some feeling? cream cheese are on you, one. Are you getting, are you getting sicky? Um, yeah, I 100% barf every single day. It's, oh, Quinn. Everyone so needs a hobby. So, And Koa always <laughs> says, bless you, when he sees me barfing. He goes up and he rubs my back and he goes, bless you, mama. Bless you. It's really, I can't tell if he's like praying or if he, I, it's so bizarre. That's really, he thinks it's a sneeze. Yeah, he it's very sweet. It's a sneeze where a lot comes up. It's a violent sneeze. Are you keeping food down? Uh, yeah, no, I don't like it's weird when you're pregnant. It's not like sick that way. It's like you wake up and you throw up and then you go downstairs and feel fine and have like some toast. And then you'll be hanging out in the afternoon and then just be like, oh, you know what? I could really go for a barf right now. 
But, you know, it's different for everybody. Okay. Well, dear readers, on that note, thanks for joining us. We love you. Don't forget it. Don't forget it. Even though we're far away. So far away. Okay, we're going to do room tone in three, two, one.